You are listening to Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm going to continue looking at Romans 8.28 this morning. We looked at it last week. And um, wonderful verse, very well-known chapter, maybe for some a favorite chapter. I know it is for many. And um, obviously it would take me years to preach the entire chapter, so I'm not going to do that. But I am going to remind you of these wonderful words We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this text is a a wonderful reminder of things true Christians have uh, committed themselves to. They believe that God is, that he is the maker and the preserver, the providential ruler of all things. And he is given us in his providence, given us his word, his promises, and this is one of the sweetest promises, I think, in all of Scripture. I'm not the first to say that either. And last week I set the verse in its context. I think it starts with verse 1 of of Romans chapter 8. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Paul's argument includes... Uh, reminding Christians that they go through difficulties and trials and persecution and all sorts of things, but God has promised to bring them to an end, to a goal, to a, to a telos, the target is glorification, which you can see if you keep reading the passage. But between faith in Christ and glorification, Life is, as a Christian, is like this. But in the midst of life being like this, some things never change. God and his promises. We change, others change, but God doesn't change and God's promises do not change. So uh, last week I said that we have here in this verse an announcement by, by God of the fact that Christians know something, and it's in these words, and we know. The reason why this is, we can know this uh, with certainty, the only way we can know this with certainty, is if God has said this to us, whatever he's going to say. And uh, of course we can, because he has, and we've read it in his word. And this statement, and we know, that God causes all things to work together for good, assumes everything we can know about God, about creation, about providence, about redemption, about glory, heaven, and everything. It assumes everything uh, about God and all things in relation to God. So it's a huge statement, and it's a wonderful promise. Then we look, secondly, at the assertion of what we know, and we know that all things work together, or God causes all things to work together for good. Either translation doesn't change the teaching, so I don't get um, all upset about the two different translations there. But we looked at um, its all-inclusiveness, all things. God causes all things to work together for good. All things work together for good. 
everything, everything not God. This is a staggering uh, way to think about it. Everything not God works together for the ultimate good of some people. Now, it doesn't work together for the ultimate good of all people. That is everything not God. But everything not God works together for the good of some people. If you're thinking with me, you want to be in that group of some people, okay? Because this thing is huge. This is God making, preserving, and driving the ship of the universe to a goal, to an end. And you want to be on the the happy side of that end. And the way you do that is you believe the gospel. So this is a staggering, all-inclusive uh, all here, and all things work together, which means everything that is made somehow, some way, is all not just made, but preserved and is being brought to a certain goal. Now, you can try to be the providential ruler of the universe if you want. But you can't even run your life well, okay? Things happen in your life that, you know, you get in car crashes. You trip and get a boo-boo on your knee. And then you cry to mommy, right? <laughs> Things happen that you didn't, like, plan. Things come upon us. Some things, sometimes by virtue of our own faults and sins, uh, and then sometimes by somebody else's faults and sins. But the point is, we can't even run our life. And we can't say all things in my life are working together for good because I cause them to work together for good no matter what. Doesn't work that way, right? Yeah, no. We make plans and then things happen. But this is this working together of all things is actually, it should be, for Christians, though mysterious, because we don't have, we can't test this, like go out and try it ourselves. This is God, okay? It's mysterious in that sense, but it should be a, a great comfort to us. It should be not only comforting, but perseverance-inducing. And that's the context in which Paul says these marvelous words, if you've read the chapter uh, you know that. So then we started to look at uh, the goal of what we know. We know that all things work together for good. Now that is should be at least a bit staggering because if you're if you just think about your life as a believer or as an unbeliever, uh, did everything that you experience what would you call everything that you have experienced in life good? You you wouldn't, okay? Bad things happen. But Paul says, these things, all, and here all means all, and that's all, all, it's all, all means here. All things without exception. Paul says, all things without exception work together for good to some people. And since all things refers to anything and everything that has come into being, this working together for good includes everything in the life of a believer. 
I think this is where I stopped last week. Because a question, a good question, ought to come up in your mind. And it is this. What about my sins? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Do my sins work together somehow, some way, for good? Because my particular sin or sins are part of the all things that God is working together for my good. How in the world can my sin work together for good? Well, I've quoted this man before. Uh, he's a 19th century Scottish um, pastor, Haldane, Robert Haldane. He seeks to answer this, and I, I thought he did a great job, and so um, I've come to read a long quote today. And here it is. Do my sins work together for good is the question. Even the sins of believers work for their good, not from the nature of sin, but by the goodness and power of him who brings light out of darkness. Everywhere in Scripture we read of the great evil of sin. Everywhere we receive the most solemn warning against its commission. And everywhere we hear also of the chastisements it brings, even upon those who are rescued from its finally condemning power. It is not sin, then, in itself that works for good. But God, who overrules its effects to his children, shows them by means of it, what is in their hearts. Now, that's a good thing, right? When we get proud and presumptive and fall into sin, we go, I'm worse than I thought. I'm pitiful. I'm weak. Look what I just did or said or whatever. He shows them by means of it what is what is in their hearts, as well as their entire dependence on him and the necessity of walking with him more closely. Their falls lead them to humiliation. That's a good thing. To the acknowledgement of their weakness and depravity. To prayer for the guidance and overpowering influence of the Holy Spirit. To vigilance and caution against all carnal security, and to reliance on that righteousness provided for their appearance before God. It is evident that the sin of Adam, which is the source of all their sins, has wrought for their good in raising them to a higher degree of glory. That's a weird way to look at the fall into sin. Uh, Adam's sin actually turns out to for our good because Christ takes us to a better condition than Adam's created state. You remember uh, the words of David, before I was afflicted, I went astray, I sinned, but now I keep your word, Psalm 119. And it was good for me that I was afflicted. See, David is saying that after the affliction. By the way, in the midst of being afflicted, does anybody rise up and go, this is great, I'm being afflicted. You say it afterwards when you, you learn the smarting lessons of falling into your sin. But now I keep your word. After I uh, went astray, I was afflicted by you. I was corrected. And it was good for me that I was afflicted. We may not know, by the way, we may not know how something will work out for good, but we know that 
it will do so. That's the promise. We may not know how, but we know that. And how do we know that? How can we say that? God, because God told me. And he told you in the scriptures, in many places, but in in our case, in Romans 8, 28. So this working together has a goal for good. The goal is the good or the benefit, the well-being of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. And this refers both to temporal and ultimate or eternal good. All things are working together, being directed by God's providence to a goal that will benefit all believers. So, you know, people say, God has a plan. God has a plan. God is working out his plan. Nobody can stop him. He puts forth his hand. Who's going to slap it? You can't stop divine omnipotence, okay? He's working out all the details of our lives. I remember when I was a young believer. I was both young and a young believer. Uh, I was. I'm not as old as you. (laughs) Although on Tuesday I'll be your age, so I'm trying to catch up. But one of the big questions was, um, is God sovereign over the little things in life? You know, whether or not I throw a golf club around a tree because I was not happy with how the club performed. You know, the clubs don't perform. The person swinging does. Have you ever seen somebody golfing? They get mad and they throw it. Okay, I used to do that. I didn't wrap it around the tree, but does God care about my golf score? Which I haven't golfed in years, but I don't know why I'm using this illustration, except to say this. The answer is yes. Is God sovereign? Was he sovereign over the fact that the ball on the 14th tee uh, green went in the hole when I was 18? I never got another hole in one. I got a hole in one one time. Was there some sort of divine providence um, superintending the ball and causing it to go in there mysteriously using the secondary creaturely cause, me, sustaining me while I was swinging? And the answer is yes, okay? But when we were, I was a young believer, when I was young, we would go, we would argue about this. We'd go out and eat pizza and co- drink coffee or Cokes till two in the morning, go, no, he's not. Just the big things. Not the little things. That's wrong. The big things and the little things. I think I've said this before. Like the hair on your head. Or the lack of of the hair on your head. Big things, little things. Massive things, minute things. There is a comprehensive... um, Providence, divine providence that is executing the divine plan in space and time that ultimately terminates in what we call Emmanuel's land, glory. And as we look, as we will be able, I don't know how much we will be able to look back at life uh, in this age, when we're in that age, but if we can, I think we probably will. We'll be creatures. We'll be able to understand a little more of how God turned things that were evil into good. You meant it for evil? 
God meant it for good. You remember that testimony from Joseph? Joseph was despised by his own family members and thrown into the ground. And then he was brought out of the ground and he was an instrument through which God saved many people, right? Does it sound like Jesus? Okay. Uh, but Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant the evil act that you conducted was actually under the superintendence of divinity executing a divine plan ultimately for his glory and the good of others. So that's, that's, uh, that's staggering for good. Um, but does that mean somebody gets in a car crash? And, um, I mean, let's just say one of their children, let's not say dies, gets very, very hurt in the car crash. His first thing you do is say, this is good. This will be for your good. She says no. If we took a vote, I think... Okay, a few of you would say, yeah, that's what you say. <laughs> and then I slap. <laughs> you don't say that. You can say a true thing at the wrong time and do more harm than good. But afterward, that person or that family could say, here's the good that God brought out of that tragic accident. We couldn't have, we never saw it in the midst of it. All we saw, we couldn't see anything. We were, it was so foggy. We were in a deep valley of despair and discouragement and questions and all sorts of things. But now that we're out here a year later, six months later, 10 years later sometimes, or more, we look back and say, here's the things that I learned. This is a wonderful promise uh, for us believers. Now, notice... Fourthly, the beneficiaries of what we know to those who love God. This is a very interesting statement because it's making distinctions between people in the audience that is now hearing me. It assumes not everybody loves God, right? To those who love God. You mean there are some people that don't love God? Yes. Oh, by the way, if you're going, I love God. If you do, it's because he loved you first. Okay? It's not like, you know, I'm a God lover. I'm good. God is good. But it says to those who love God, he excludes then some people from the blessing of owning this promise as their own. So he assumes not everybody loves God. And notice that this promise is only for those who love God, for those who see in God goodness and kindness and mercy and desire fellowship with him and have it through Christ. I mean, if we read the entire packet, passage, we'd have to say, okay, now I know what he means by to those who love God. And if we don't um, know what it means. He kind of further qualifies it in the next phrase, next statement, to those who are called according to purpose. So if you're going to love God in the way intended by Paul, something else needs to cause it to happen, namely this calling according to purpose. Those who love God are those who are called according to divine purpose. They're called to love God, um, According to a divine purpose, listen to uh, 2 Timothy 1.9. 
kind of helps us fill in the gaps here. Who has saved us, God has saved us, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Now, that's one of those weird texts that has us creatures challenges us to think uh, about how God does things on the earth that are actually connected with this eternal purpose in Christ Jesus. That's for us, that's odd, okay? But God has revealed it. It's clearly in scripture. God has a plan. God is working out his plan. With reference to his plan terminating upon a mediator, Jesus, there are some who are called in a unique way to come to Christ, and they do, in fact, come to Christ all by grace, and they have fellowship with God through Christ. Those are the ones that whose hearts were changed, and now they, they love God. Why do they love God? Because God loved them first. He gave his son for us, but then He the son gives the spirit to us, and we are awakened. We are we are regenerated is the language sometimes we use. Uh, light comes into a dark place and recreation occurs in souls. We see things we never saw before. Um, I remember your testimony one time. After he was saved, he goes down to play basketball or something somewhere and everything changed. It was all the same guys, same ball. But he had different lens. It's like, there's a lot of sin in the world. You know? You just don't flip a switch in your brain. That kind of stuff is an effect wrought in your mind. Something done to you from a power outside of you that's sustaining you the whole time. And in conjunction with the written word of God, we come to realize, man, I'm, I'm way worse than I thought. I'm in bigger trouble than I thought. And I can't even remember all the things that I've done. God can. And I'm glad other people don't know all the things that I have done and said and thought and planned on doing, but never did. You know, those kind of thoughts, that's, that can be healthy if you don't stop in your own putrid soul and just say, woe is me. But God causes true believers at one point in your experience to feel that way. And that's why foul eye to the fountain fly, wash me savior or I die. That's why you went to Christ to get relief from all that. This is an effect. This is a work of God in us, to us, for us. So that this calling Paul's talking about here ends up being an effective divine summons. I'm borrowing the language from somebody. I'm not eloquent, okay? An effective divine summons. Isn't that great? Even if you don't think it is, I think it is. (laughs) An effective, it's John Murray who said something like that. It, uh, It has corresponding power that actually ushers the sinner into fellowship with Christ and every single time this kind of a call comes. All of us who are now believers experienced that call. When it was happening, 
None of us were going, this is effectual calling. This is an effective divine summons. Wow. No, we're, we're sinners and our consciousness, we're reading the Bible or hearing our parents tell us the gospel and, or singing a hymn and something jumps out. And we just repent and go to Christ. It's after the fact that we explain all the, the, the theological, um, I have another good word, but I forgot it. Mechanics, that's the word. These are the called ones. That's why they love God. Because effectual calling. Because irresistible grace, some people call it. Because this effective summons that changes stubborn, proud, proud hearts, that humbles them by showing them their sins, that also gives them light to see the glory of God in Christ gives them wings to fly, speaking uh, metaphorically. They see in Christ the on- their only hope. This calling grants repentance from sin. This calling grants faith in Christ. And all of this results in the forgiveness of all their sins, a right standing with God based on not their own goodness, not their promises to be better, but the righteousness of Christ alone, the alone righteousness approved in heaven. It also brings, ushers these believing, repentant, believing sinners into God's spiritual family. We're adopted, we're sons and daughters of God through, by virtue of the work of Christ for us. This is the work of Christ now in us. This is this calling and it's not just heard by the ear. Okay, this is this is God blessing His Word and bringing it to souls with power. Um, and the Lord opened her heart to understand the things that Paul spoke. Lydia, Acts fourteen, I think. The Lord opened her heart while Paul was speaking. It would be wonderful. Well, it wouldn't be. But it would be weird if I had the power not only to speak, but to tinker with your soul while I was speaking. To give effective summons. You know, I'm not God. I can't do that. By the way, this is why preachers need to preach the Bible, explain it clearly, and not merely try to get people to make decisions because an old man like me can get, well, you're probably too old now. You might not be. Can get smaller children to raise their hands, okay, to walk aisles. I can cry and some of you kids, you haven't come to Jesus yet. (laughs) Which might be true. But if I don't, preach the truth, it's just emotions. So, anyway, this calling is a wonderful calling. All of this is by virtue of the fact that God has presented a mediator to the world in his Son, in the incarnate Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And God has this plan that he's going to take the benefits of Christ and bring them to the sheep of Christ, other sheep I have, 
who are not of this fold, the Gentiles, he's going to bring the benefits of Christ to the people of Christ by the work of the Spirit of Christ in us, in conjunction with the Word. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Ephesians 6, 17. So this is a, a wonderful, wonderful promise, and it should be contemplated. So let us do that. As my granddaughter responds to the sermon. Contemplations, that means, let's think about this. And all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So our text, first, implies something about God, all things that have come into existence, and the ultimate control of these things, right? It implies something about God, all things that have come into existence, and big, ultimate control over all these things. Because if God didn't have comprehensive, providential dealings with all that he has made, he could never say all things work together for good. He has to have everything ultimately as mysterious as it sounds to us as creatures. Everything has to be a part of divine providence. The continued execution of divine power, sustaining that which has been made, moving it mysteriously, altering it, causing mutations to occur, and then ultimately bringing everything not God to an end or goal, the glory of God. So just as the beginning of everything not God, creation, comes as a result of his sovereignty, we have to say, so the middle and so the end, or else... This verse wouldn't, couldn't be said. And if God were not sovereign over all things, then believers in Christ could not be assured that all things, in fact, are working together for their good. So, for instance, if we say, well, only the big things and not the little things, then there's no comfort. Because something might be able to separate us from the love of God sever us from Christ. If it is not the case that God is sovereign over all things, then there might be something that can derail us. But notice what Paul does at the end of this passage. Uh, Mario, I think, read it last week. In verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life uh, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor... And he keeps going. But see what he's doing here? He's going to conclude. Shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In order for that to be true, God has to be... Um, not only um, omniscient and omnipotent, but he has to execute his omniscient omnipotence 24-7, sustaining creatures and moving them 
to an end. Now, somebody could might say this. Well, okay, death and life and all that stuff. Angels, principalities, all right. Present things, things to come. Powers, height, depth. Um, none of that stuff can separate me from the love of God. Jesus said, I'm in, uh, I got my sheep in my hand. They're in the Father's hand. Um, but sometimes I feel like I can separate myself from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That's where these words come into play here. Nor any other created thing. If you notice, I didn't read those words until just now. Nor any other created thing. Are you a created thing? Yes. Are you able then to separate yourself from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? No. That's good news. Because you remember the illustration? Maybe you don't. You didn't hear the sermon. I don't know if I heard this sermon or somebody told me they heard this sermon. But you know where Jesus says, they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. Um, somebody once said, but you can jump out. nor any other created thing. Okay, if I jumped out, he's going to go grab me. It's, 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 you don't jump out, you know. If you're in, you're in. And you can't get yourself out. So our text, secondly, as far as our meditation on this verse, and I think... I'll stop here. Our text provides great present encouragement for those who love God, no matter what circumstances God's providence has brought into your life, no matter how weak or how strong your love for God might be. Okay? All things work together for good to those who really love God. To those who on a scale of 99, uh, 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 0 to 100, Love God 99% pure. He doesn't say that. To those who have strong affections for God, passions that come out and, and, and people know this person loves God. No. To those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. It does not depend on the temperature of our hearts, the degree, the amount of love we have for God. I think that's pretty good news, because if you're honest with yourself, you're not always, um, what is that song, ba-ba-ba-bubbling. <laughs> We're not singing bu bu bubbling afterwards here. You know, it's the person that's just bubbling over and they're all, it's a camp song, I think, for kids or something like that. It's, it's, I almost said, okay, it's a lie. We shouldn't sing those kind of things because you create the expectation of floating six inches off the ground with a, you know, your halo and wings and you're, you're just floating along in life and everything. Oh, I'm just bu bu bubbling. Did, 
Was Paul bubba bubbling in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in the reading this morning? No. Despaired um, of our of their lives. He was distraught. He was a realist. But our text does provide for those who love God wonderful encouragement. Uh, in in a hymn I would like to quote. Hymn 418, verse 3. Oh. I have it in here. It says this. Um, before I read this, it's hymn 418, verse 3. The encouragement I'm trying to give to people here is that even though your heart might, might not be aflamed, you know, stirred up and the uh, bubba bubbling all the time, that it's, it's okay. It happens. This, is, this promise is still for you. And those who are honest with themselves realize, I don't, Here, here's the line. We, we have not loved thee as we ought. That, that's, a, that's a line in the hymn. Nor cared that we are loved by thee. You know that God loves us irrespective of the quality of our love for him? How would you like God to love you corresponding to your love for God. Uh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. You better love me way better than I love you or else I'm um, toast. We have not loved thee as we ought, nor cared that we are loved by thee. Thy presence we have coldly sought and feebly longed thy face to see. Lord, give a pure and loving heart to feel and own the love thou art. Marvelous words. Uh, an honest soul there going, you know what? He loved me way better than I deserve. I, I'm cold at heart. I don't contemplate the fact that even though I don't have this burning zeal of love as a passion in my soul, it doesn't change your love for me. Remember the catechism question. What is your only comfort in life and death? It doesn't say that I'm the bubba bubbling. It says this, that both in soul and body, whether I live or die, I am not my own, but belong wholly unto my most faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is your only, the greatest comfort in life and death? I'm not my own. I'm Christ. I've been bought with a price. That's my greatest comfort. By his most precious blood, fully satisfying for all my sins, he has delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly father, not so much as a hair may fall from my head, but they, they fall. Yes, all things must serve for my ultimate safety. And by his spirit also, he assures me of everlasting life and makes me ready and prepared that from now on, I may live to him. That is a wonderful answer to the question. What is your only comfort in life and death? So, I ask my hearers here and elsewhere, what is your only supreme 
comfort in life and death. If it's not, I belong to Christ. You've got problems that I can't overcome for you. But Christ can. And he offers himself to sinners just like you. So you you go just like the hymn says, foul eye to the fountain fly, wash me as Savior or I die. Don't make any resolves to get any better so that you might clean up your life and then go to Christ. Go stinky, go dirty, go foul. Otherwise, you don't need a Savior, right? Go as you are and throw yourself at his mercy. And you know what you'll find? You'll find in Jesus a friend for sinners. Way better than any earthly uh, friend that you might have. And for those of us who have, by God's grace, come to Christ, cling to this verse, not just the ink on the page, the truths uh, that are contained, uh, embodied in the words themselves. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to purpose. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would burn it into our uh, into our heads and hearts. Some of these things, most of these things, maybe even all of these things for some of my hearers are, are old news, are things we already know. But we know ourselves. We tend to shelve truth when we need it most at times. Help us not to do that. And then do your great work, bringing uh, law and gospel to the souls of those who need Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CVTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.